Welcome back, friends. Bill Creasy here with Monday's episode of Scripture Uncovered. Hey, good to be with you, and I have some good news personally today. Uh, over the weekend, I was able to snag an appointment to get my first COVID shot, uh, which I got this morning. So I'm doing this podcast a little bit later in the day. Uh, I'll have my second shot on March 1st, and I should be good to go. Uh, I look forward to it because without the vaccines, I don't think we'll be traveling anywhere on teaching tours to the Middle East or anywhere else for that matter. And I don't think we'd be having live classes until we reach a, a kind of critical level of vaccination. So anyhow, that was really good news, and I'm happy to tell you. Uh, in addition to that, next Wednesday, the 17th, February 17th, uh, will be Ash Wednesday, and that's the beginning of Lent. Uh, the beginning of Lent. You know, Lent traditionally offers a 40-day journey through the wilderness, a time of fasting, penance, and prayer leading up to Jesus' arrest, trial, crucifixion, and his triumphal resurrection on Easter morning. But, boy, it seems like we've already been through nearly a year of COVID Lent. Wouldn't it be wonderful for all of us listening to the podcast if we could reemerge from this wilderness we've been through, reacquaint ourselves with friends and share time together as longtime Logo students. Now, we can't meet in live classes yet, but we can get together, gather around the story of Jesus' passion, and discuss it on live weekly Zoom sessions, actually seeing and hearing each other. I miss all of you. I miss seeing you. I miss talking with you. You know, I'm here recording a podcast, but I'm just talking into a microphone. It would be nice to talk to you. Well, you're invited to join me and my longtime friend and colleague, Reverend Judith Lyons, as together we explore the events of Holy Week. It promises to be a really great Lenten series with six video presentations, followed by four live 90-minute Zoom discussions with me and Jude, Reverend Judith. The video releases will come on February 26th. There'll be one video, Friday, February 26th. Then two videos on March 5th, again on Friday. Two more videos on March 10th and a final video on March 19th. And they'll be accompanied by four Zoom sessions on Tuesday evening from 7 to 8.30 on March 2nd, 9, 16, and 23. So we just sent out a mailing to our mailing list um, with all the material on it, the registration material. If you're not on my mailing list, uh, wait a few days and go to the website LogosBibleStudy.com, and we'll have registration up on the homepage uh, that you can work from to join us as we all get together and get ourselves out of this COVID funk. Yeah, I've got my vaccine. Now, 
I just want to see all of you and, and talk with you and, and have a good time together. And we can do it at least online on Zoom. So that's where we're headed uh, over the next few weeks. Now, back to our study of Matthew. We left off with Matthew. Uh, Jesus now knows without question who he is and what he's to do. After Jesus takes the disciples to Caesarea Philippi, after Peter's confession of faith, after Peter's confession of faith being validated by God the Father on the Mount of Transfiguration in the presence of two credible witnesses, Moses and Elijah, and truly you can't get more credible than that, he heads directly for Jerusalem and the cross. He tells his disciples three times on the journey, we're going to Jerusalem, I'll be arrested, tried, crucified, buried, and raised. They object. Peter even says, I'll, no, it's not going to happen. I would die for you. But they don't, they don't understand. So on the way to Jerusalem, they're talking, the crowds are gathering, it's Passover, all the people are traveling parallel to the Jordan River on the east side, coming from the north up in Galilee, they'll cross back over Jericho and they go up the old Roman road uh, to Jerusalem. And that brings us to Matthew 21, the triumphal entry. And that's where we'll put in today. Now I read from Matthew 21. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying, Go ahead to the village, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, tell him the Lord needs them, and he'll send them right away. Now all this took place, Matthew tells us, to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Look, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That's Zechariah chapter 9 at verse 9. So when Jesus and his disciples ford the Jordan River at Jericho, they begin their walk up a 17.3-mile road built by the Romans a road that clings to one side of the cliffs of the Wadi Kelt. And as that road begins to climb up to Jerusalem, from Jericho, 900 feet below sea level, to Jerusalem, 2,500 feet above sea level, you have about a 3,500-foot vertical climb. It takes a day, a day of solid uphill walking. It's 17.3 miles, I know, because I've measured it. I walked it. I didn't walk down. I didn't walk up. I'm no fool. I walked down. But it's a day's journey, and the people then would have made it up or down in one day. Uh, indeed, we note that when Jesus is lost at the temple, uh, when he's 12 years old, that his parents got all the way down to Jericho, going back to Nazareth, and they didn't find him. So they went back up the road looking for him. They left the Mount of Olives in the morning. They arrived at Jericho in time for dinner, a one-day walk, 17.3 miles. But here they are now. They're on the way up that road. And Jesus said, 
as they're approaching Jerusalem, they came to Bethphage. Bethphage is a village. Bethany is another village. They're right close together. Today, it's one town uh, on about a quarter mile on the downside of the Mount of Olives. But he said to them, as we came up on Bethphage, go to the village ahead of you. That would be Bethany. And at once, you'll find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, tell them the Lord needs them and will send them right away. So clearly, Jesus had made arrangements for this to happen. And I'll bet you anything that that colt is tied to the white fence surrounding the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. He sent word ahead. They got everything ready. He is going to stage his entry into Jerusalem. So the disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. That is, on the cloaks, not the two animals. As I heard one pastor say in a homily, <laughs> and a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. So we have our Palm Sunday entry. From the top of the Mount of Olives, once you get up to the top, straight down what we call the Palm Sunday Road. We've walked down it many a time. Well, it's about 500 yards from the top of the Mount of Olives to the eastern wall of the temple platform. About 500 yards. You can walk it in, oh, I don't know, 10 minutes, 10, 15 minutes. So, the disciples went and did as Jesus told them, and now they're on the way down the Palm Sunday Road. Now, the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed, big crowds of people. After all, it is Passover. A million people are coming to town, and a lot of them are traveling from the north, fording the Jordan River at Jericho, going up the road. So as he's riding down that Palm Sunday Road, the crowds are waving palm branches. They're shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. In the Gospel according to Luke, we read, they're saying, blessed is the king who comes, making explicit his kingship, which was inferred in Matthew, but explicit in Luke. And they're waving palm branches. Now, what are the palm branches about? Why palm branches? If you've gone to church on a Sunday, on Palm Sunday, and your church hands out palm branches, branches, symbolic, on Palm Sunday. It's not a big fan. It's a blade from a palm leaf. And if you have all these people on the Mount of Olives shaking those palm leaves, what are they? They're symbolic swords. They're shaking symbolic swords, and they're proclaiming a new king. And Jesus has set this up. When he entered the city, the whole city was stirred. Who is this? And the crowds answered, Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. The prophet from Nazareth. Remember in the gospel according to John, when Philip finds Nathanael and says, we have found the Messiah, you've got to come and meet him, Jesus of Nazareth. Nathanael says, 
what good could come from Nazareth? True, it's a little podunk town on a finger ridge in the Jezreel Valley, maybe 20 people, 20 extended families, a couple hundred people. But no, that's not what he meant. Nazareth was a hotbed of radical revolutionary thought and action. Every single revolt against the Roman Empire in the first century AD originated in Galilee. So when Nathanael says nothing good could come from Galilee, he's saying, stay away from the guy, he's a troublemaker. Now the crowds are saying, Jesus the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee, associating Jesus with the rabble-rousers from Galilee. And what does Jesus do? Go into the temple and pray? No, Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. He was shouting, It is written, My house will be called a house of prayer, and you've made it a den of thieves. He goes into the temple area and he's wrecking the place. The merchants, the main entrance to the temple, was on the southern steps. A, a, a long, long set of stairs, the entire width of the temple platform. And there were two major entrances on the left-hand side and then two on the right-hand side to come out. Entrance on the left, exit on the right. We've sat on those very steps, the original steps on which Jesus stood. That was the entry point. And when you come for Passover, you need to buy your Passover lamb, you need to buy souvenirs and so on. Turn the corner on the southern, southwestern corner of the temple platform, and the street that parallels the western wall, that's where all the merchants were, who bought, who exchanged money, who bought and sold and so on. So Jesus went into that area and started wrecking the place, turning over tables, beating people up, throwing people out, shouting, It is written, my house will be a house of prayer, and you've made it a den of thieves. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw what things he was doing, and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they ask him? Oh, yes, Jesus replied, I'll, I'll tell them to be quiet. No, yes, have you never read from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise? Have you never read that? And he left them, left the city, and went to Bethany, where he spent the night at the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Talk about entering Jerusalem with a bang. He sure did, and before he can be arrested, he leaves and goes back to Bethany. Now, early the next morning, on his way back into the city, and you can be sure they're waiting for him, on the way, seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. And immediately the tree withered. Well, here we have Jesus killing the fig tree. What is that all about? Well, I'd like to look at this story 
as it's recorded by Mark. It's the earliest version of the story, and I'd like to have a look at it and go through it with you. When I teach the Gospel according to Mark, the question inevitably arises. When we reach Mark 11, 12 to 14, why does Jesus curse the fig tree? After all, we're told that it was not the season for figs. So why would Jesus be so offended at not finding any? This episode presents a very difficult problem in Mark, which then transfers over into Matthew. We can only solve this problem if we read the narrative in its full context and examine its language, grammar, and syntax very closely. Now, I do this teaching the story of the fig tree in class, typically not on a podcast, but I want to look at it with you because, well, you deserve to understand this story. When Jesus enters Jerusalem the week before his crucifixion, he arrives at the temple. It's late. He leaves the city for Bethany. The village is on the, on the, on the opposite side of the Mount of Olives, and he stays the night. Now, he's already been into Jerusalem. He's wrecked the place. Now, he's coming back. And we read in Mark. The next morning, he and his disciples walk back to Jerusalem. On the way, Jesus is hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him, heard him say it. Now, when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, he enters the temple area. He drives out the merchants and money changers. In Mark, this comes first. Matthew, it comes second. But he drives them out. The fig tree, the next day in Matthew, in Jerusalem, fig trees leaf as early as March. And they can reach full leaf within a week. But they don't bear fruit until around June. And these are early figs that grow on old wood. Summer figs ripen in August and October. Now, since the story takes place at Passover, springtime, Jesus could not expect to find figs on the tree. But he could expect to find small, olive-sized buds that are edible. Now, a close look at the language in Mark and the grammar and syntax supports this position. I'm going to literally translate the Greek from Mark word for word, retaining the syntax and highlighting with my voice the sentence. Having seen a fig tree from a distance, having leaves... He came to see if then something he might find on it. And having come upon it, nothing he found except leaves, for the season was not of figs. 
Now, in Greek grammar, having seen is an aorist participle which expresses a simple action which is prior to the action of the main verb he came to see. From a distance is an adverbial phrase that modifies having seen, and having leaves is a participle functioning as an adjective in the predicate position. Oh, such a grammar geek, huh? <laughs> but in other words, as Jesus and his disciples walked from Bethany toward Jerusalem, the fig tree in the distance catches Jesus' attention because it's in leaf, and he moves toward it to have a look. The grammar of the sentence precisely defines the sequence of events. Now, the reason Jesus moves toward the tree is to see if, then, something he might find on it. In English, that's pretty clunky syntax. But in Greek, it's very precise and informative. The verb, he might find, is a future indicative, which makes an assertion of fact projected into the future. Preceded by if-then, the phrase stresses the realism of Jesus' hope. Mark's use of something rather than figs for what Jesus hopes to find fits the circumstances of the story. Exactly. Placing something in the forward position, something he might find, emphasizes the fact that Jesus didn't expect to find mature fruit, but he did expect to find something. So when he arrives at the tree, Jesus finds nothing but leaves. Having come is another aorist participle parallel to the first one, which again expresses a simple action prior to the main action of the verb. Placing nothing in the forward position and separating it from except leaves stresses the barrenness of the tree and the disappointment Jesus feels. The last phrase, for the season was not of figs, explains why Jesus went to find something rather than figs, not why he found nothing but leaves. In other words, having seen in the distance a tree and leaf, Jesus came to find something on it. He didn't expect to find figs because it was not yet the season for figs. Instead of buds, however, which he would expect to find, he finds nothing. Mark moves the phrase, nothing he found except leaves, ahead of, for the season was not, uh, for the season was not of figs, in order to emphasize Jesus' surprise and disappointment at finding nothing instead of something on the tree. This stylistic device is very effective in the Greek, and it sets up the reader for the curse that comes in verse 14 of Mark. May no one ever eat fruit from you again, or literally, no longer into the age from you no one fruit may eat. The English is again clunky, but the Greek, as before, is very precise. No longer into the age, or better, 
no longer forever, emphasizes the strength of the curse. From you directs it specifically and pointedly at the tree. No one makes the curse absolute. And fruit may eat deepens the strength of the curse even more. Jesus expects the tree to have buds. That's a reasonable expectation since the tree is in leaf and it's not yet the season for figs. But the tree does not have buds. All right. May it never have fruit either. Now, familiarity with the botany of Jerusalem on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives, along with a careful examination of the language, grammar, and syntax of the sentence, corrects the mistaken notion that Jesus unreasonably curses the fig tree for not bearing figs, even though it's not the season for figs. A reader of Greek, who's familiar with fig trees, as anyone living in the Mediterranean during the time of Jesus would be, would not make such a mistake. Yet, to understand the story fully, we must press beyond the fig tree and read the narrative in its full context. The cursing of the fig tree frames the story of Jesus driving out the merchants and money changers from the temple. The cursing of the fig tree illuminates the central story of Jesus cleansing the temple. Now, the temple had been the center of worship in Israel for a thousand years. God gave sacrificial worship to the Israelites in 1446 BC when the Israelites constructed the tabernacle in the wilderness and received instructions from God on how to use it. In 958 BC, the temple replaced the tabernacle as the focus of worship, and the sacrifices continued uninterrupted, except during the Babylonian captivity for a brief period and during the Maccabean revolt during a brief period. All the way up through the time of Jesus. When Jesus comes to the temple in AD 32, he doesn't expect to find the full fruits of a thousand years of temple worship. But he does expect to find something. What he finds, however, is an elaborate set of empty rituals. He finds, in effect, a tree in full leaf without even the beginning of fruit. In some of the strongest words of Scripture, Jesus says, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. You have made it a den of thieves. Jesus is outraged at how God's house has become a center of commerce and how the trappings of religion have replaced faith in God. In anger, Jesus tears down the merchants' booths, overturns the tables, drives the merchants out of the temple. And Mark frames this event with the acted-out parable of Jesus cursing the fig tree. In the parable, the fig tree is the temple, a tree in full leaf. Jesus comes to it hungry, expecting to find something, but he finds nothing. His curse? May no one ever eat fruit from you again has a dreadful effect. The next day, the fig tree stands dead in the ground, 
withered from its roots. Likewise, when Jesus clears the temple, it also has a dreadful effect. The temple withers from the roots. Indeed, within a generation after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, the temple is burned to the ground in A.D. 70. And to this day, it lies in ruins. Jesus' words in Mark 11, verse 14, thus become prophetic. No longer forever from you, no one may eat fruit. The temple is finished. Now think of that, folks. A thousand years of temple worship given by God, the entire sacrificial system, the design of the tabernacle, Solomon building the temple, the temple being destroyed by the Babylonians, then rebuilt, expanded greatly by Herod the Great. A thousand years of temple sacrificial worship, and you would expect something. But what Jesus finds is nothing. Simply empty ritual. A den of thieves. From now on, may nothing come from you. And sure enough, that's exactly what happens. That brings us right up to the end of Monday's lesson. And uh, we come back again on Wednesday. I'll be with you again. And we'll put right in and continue Jesus' encounter with the religious leaders. Day by day, it will heat up. Day by day, it will become more aggressive. Day by day, Jesus will ensure that on Friday, he is nailed to a cross. Thank you, folks. Good seeing you. And uh, pray for me, if you will, that uh, things go well and uh, we can all get together, I hope, for our, our Lenten session and uh, see each other on, on Zoom and have some good talks. Okay, bye-bye now.